You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. It happened on a warm spring evening in May 1666 on the coast of the Spanish province of Panama. The merchant ship Concord lay at anchor in the harbor at Portobello. Her goods, her crew, and her captain, Henry Wasey, were all English. They were fully licensed and legitimate. The Treaty of Madrid had sealed the peace between England and Spain, and the Concord had no cause for worry over the two countries' former tensions. The crew spent the evening relaxing, gambling, sharing a jug of rum, and talking, mostly about how they were going to spend their wages. In the morning, the crew was to begin unloading all of their cargo onto the dock. However, they would never get that chance. As the sun sank below the horizon, a boat rode toward the Concord, filled with armed and angry Spanish soldiers. These soldiers climbed on board and arrested the crew and captain on charges of spying. The captain was not a spy. If he were, he would be better informed. He would likely have heard of the ship that had recently sailed into harbor under a flag of truce that brought the militia of Old Providence into the port of Portobello. He would have heard reports of the English pirates that had stormed the fort and taken the island from the Spanish. He would have heard of the plan laid down by the governor, Don Juan Perez de Guzman, to commandeer his ship, the Concord. The captain would have heard his plan to have him thrown into a dungeon and to sail the Concord to retake Providence. The entire Spanish garrison at Providence and a large number of militia from Portobello set sail in the Concord on August 2nd the force numbering somewhere in the realm of 500 men. On Providence herself, the new English governor, a man named Major Samuel Smith, had, well, only 72 men. According to a later deposition given by Major Smith, he was, quote, On 19 August, by three Spanish vessels, a New England catch taken from the English by the Spaniards, and an English ship, the Concord, 30 guns, of which Henry Wasey was commander, manned by Spaniards, summoned to surrender. Major Smith declined that offer. To continue his story, 
Whereupon the enemy landed, and, after three days' siege, he was forced to surrender upon articles of good quarter, which the Spaniards did not in the least perform. For the English, about forty, were immediately made prisoners, and all, except Sir Thomas Whetstone, this deponent, and Captain Stanley, who were commanders, forced to work in irons and chains at the Spaniards' forts, with many stripes, and many are since dead through want and ill-usage." said three commanders were sent to panama where they were cast into a dungeon and bound in irons for seventeen months at length being released this deponent arrived in havana his company being lost according to another deposition the english surrendered quote, on condition of having a small bark to transport them to jamaica but when they laid down their arms, the Spanish refused them the bark and carried them slaves to Portobello, where they were chained to the ground in a dungeon twelve by ten in which thirty were prisoners. They were forced to work in the water from five in the morning to seven at night, and at such a rate that the Spaniards confessed they made one of them do more work than any three Negroes, yet when weak with want of victuals and sleep they were knocked down and beaten with cudgels, and four or five died. Having no clothes, their backs were blistered with the sun, their heads scorched, their necks, soldiers, and hands were raw with carrying stones and mortar, their feet chopped, and their legs bruised and battered with the irons, and their corpses were noisome one to another. The daily abuses of their religion and their king, and the continual trouble they had with friars, would be tedious to mention. End quote. Exquamelon takes it a step further, telling us that after the Spanish had retaken control of Providence, a ship bearing settlers, notably including women, arrived at the island. Major Smith was made to go down and guide the ship into harbor where the Spanish were waiting to take the English, both men and women, prisoner. I chose to use so many quotes here to illustrate how many exist. Testimonies were taken from all of the survivors. Letters were written to the Duke of Albemarle in Virginia, and thus given to the court of Charles back in London. This wasn't some small event, this was a serious international affair. On the ground back in Jamaica, the few ragged survivors that had managed to escape told their stories to Governor Montefort and Captain Morgan. These stories spread all around the island, and the English, all the way from the richest inland planters to the lowliest buccaneers and prostitutes, were enraged at it. Really, it's easy to see why. The English, after taking Providence from the Spanish, agreed terms of surrender and honored them. When the Spanish retook the island from the English, they also agreed to very similar terms, but then treacherously betrayed them. They imprisoned and enslaved the English. They beat them, they starved them, and they allowed their inquisitors to torture the so-called heretics. In this case, the Spanish, who were already long-time enemies of the English, really made perfect mustache-twirling villains. On the part of the English, a response was required to preserve their honor. It had to be a swift and brutal reprisal. The only man capable and available to lead that response was the newly minted Admiral Henry Morgan. And to do so, he would have to do things that would test his honor. This is episode number 21 on Torture. Henry Morgan had established himself on Jamaica. He owned a sugar plantation that was doing pretty well and traveled in rich circles of the inland planters. He was even a frequent guest of some of the well-to-do merchants and even the governor. He had 
well and truly set down roots. He had begun a family, and the Morgans were a well-respected clan on Jamaica. It was apparent that his buccaneering days were behind him. However, he was the highest-ranking military man on the island, and when the news came back from Providence that was so dire, the governor turned to Captain Morgan. He held the rank of colonel, and he was in charge of the entire militia of Jamaica, but Moody Ford meant to send Henry Morgan back to sea. An official commission from the governor, and therefore royally appointed, raised Captain Morgan to Admiral Morgan in command of the Jamaica station, and gave him significant influence among the Brethren of the Coast. I say influence rather than command because men like Admiral Mings and Mansvelt and now Morgan commanded few actual British naval ships. The few actual ships of the line that were in that part of the Caribbean stayed near the coast of Jamaica and near Port Royal to defend her. They were necessary to deter invasion, so the Admiral of the Jamaica Station had to once again rely on the ships of the Brethren of the Coast. And once again, they found themselves in a dire naval situation. In January 1667, France once again declared war on England. England was also still embroiled in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. But most worrying of all were the rumors that the Spanish had amassed, finally, at long last, the windward fleet on the southern coast of Cuba, and they were poised to invade Jamaica. The continental concerns of the English crown were pushed to the side. Their wars with France and with the Netherlands were less important in the Caribbean than the impending invasion of the island from the Spanish. So Morgan had orders from the governor to rally a fleet of buccaneer vessels and sail for Cuba towards where the Windward Fleet was and hopefully to learn the truth of any of these reports. It goes without saying, I think, that the fleet was also to plunder any Spanish vessels or Spanish settlements that were vulnerable to their attacks. So Morgan set sail for Cuba. The agreed-upon rendezvous was a location known as the South Keys. He was accompanied by his friend and frequent collaborator, a man named John Morris, who was the captain of the Dolphin. The Dolphin was actually the fleet's largest ship. It carried eight guns and a total of 60 men. Morgan's own ship was smaller. Indeed, most buccaneer vessels were tiny, really. Usually they were no more than open rowboats that had a single mast to catch the wind when it was possible. They didn't carry any guns except for the muskets that the men on board carried. Aside from Morgan's smaller vessel and the Dolphin and a few of the more notorious pirates out of Tortuga, buccaneer ships were not what you think of as pirate ships. The days of heavily armed pirate vessels roaming the Caribbean were still years away. The two captains waited in the South Keys and sent out messengers to spread word that they were gathering a fleet. You see, pirate fleets rarely gathered in port. Spanish spies were everywhere in the Caribbean, including Port Royal and Tortuga, and Discussing any plans for where they might attack in a local tavern, a rum house, a brothel, or even on the beach was likely to be discovered by the Spanish before you even set out. Now, Morgan was a famous man at this point. He was the man who had sacked Grenada and the English admiral. He was dashing and he was charismatic and he was a talented commander. So, buccaneer vessels from all over the islands came to this fleet in droves. 
Now, Morgan was famous, but he wasn't the most famous buccaneer captain in the Caribbean, at least not yet. But he was the only buccaneer captain of any repute that was gathering a fleet that spring. There were other buccaneer fleets around the Spanish main in the Caribbean, but they were already on their raids. So this fleet that Morgan was gathering offered the most reward for any man with a ship. According to Stephen Talty's book, Empire of Blue Water, quote, Privateers appeared out of the coves of Tortuga and the bars of Port Royal. And he continues, quote, As he walked his decks, Morgan would have passed among men from every corner of the old world and the new. There were adventure-minded English youths, French Huguenots who had fled religious persecution, English free thinkers and jailbirds. Old hands from Cromwell's new model army still dressed in the legendary scarlet coats, now tattered and stained. There were Portuguese adventurers, escaped slaves, mulatto sons of Spanish fathers and black mothers, indentured servants who had jumped aboard trade ships and made their way to freedom, perhaps the odd Dutchman or two. In the old world, they would have been in a jail cell or working as disgruntled serfs. On Henry Morgan's ship, they were one move away from being a captain or just filthy rich. End quote. By March, the fleet was assembled and consisted of 12 ships, perhaps a couple more according to different sources, and at least 700 men. Now that the fleet was gathered, however, it was time to see to the formalities. Now the first was for all of the captains in the fleet to agree that Captain Morgan was in command, but this was really a true formality. It was Morgan himself, his fame and his reputation that had gathered this fleet here. There was no question that he was to be in command. The second order of business, however, would be slightly more contentious. Every captain had to agree to follow and enforce their pirate code. Do any of you remember in that first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Curse of the Black Pearl, when Elizabeth Swan, played by Kira Knightley, says, According to the Code of the Brethren, set down by the pirates Morgan and Bartholomew, you have to take me to your captain. Now that's a reference to the pirate code set down by Captain Morgan. She even says his name there. And for that little nod to actual history, I really love it. But these films, while I love them, can really drive me crazy when I look at it through a historical eye. No, I'm not going to go into all of the minutiae that bothers me here. It doesn't really fit the conversation. However, if that's something you'd be interested in, I am working on reviews of both Black Sails and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which I'll be putting on YouTube before too long, so keep an eye out for those. Now, in regard to the pirate code, a few minutes later in the film, Captain Barbosa goes on to say, the code is more what you would call guidelines than actual rules. This is wrong on two counts. First, Pirate codes were not guidelines. They were strict laws that demanded absolute obedience on pain of severe punishment or even death. The idea of pirates as lawless brigands only holds so much weight. They didn't adhere to the laws of the nations that claimed to govern them, but they did have laws among themselves that, if broken, carried consequences. A little later on in the show, we're going to talk more in depth about some of those consequences. But the second and larger point here that's wrong with both the quotes of Elizabeth Swan and Captain Barbosa is assuming that Captain Barbosa would care one bit for the pirate code of Captain Morgan. See, pirates were true Democrats. Many, especially in the later days, the golden age of piracy, first went to sea on merchant or naval vessels, vessels in which the captain's word was law. 
The main allure to the pirate life, aside from maybe the plunder, was having a say in your own destiny. They ensured this power, this say in their own destiny, through these piratical codes of conduct. See, every ship had its own code, and every man on board had a say and a vote on that code, and if he didn't agree, he didn't sail. Well, that's not exactly true. Every man didn't have a say. Every crew member, though, did have a vote, including women, natives, or even freed African slaves. However, pirates would notoriously take captive sailors that had some set of skills that they needed. Surgeons and ship's carpenters were at particular risk, but guides, pilots, and other skilled sailors were frequently taken as well. See, these seamen were serving under duress. They didn't want to be there, and at least at first they weren't crew and they didn't get a vote on the pirate's code. They were essentially indentured servants or even slaves to the pirates for a limited period of time. But Captain Morgan's code, while it was something of a template for later piratical codes, would not have been the code of Captain Barbosa or Captain Teach or Captain Vane or Captain Bonnet or any pirate in the latter days. This was not some overarching piratical law. This was something that every pirate had a say on on his own vessel. The code did, however, usually outline the role of captain, quartermaster, the surgeon, the carpenters, and really all of the men on board the vessel. This detailed their duties as well as the limits to their authority. You see, in the case of the captain, and this is a generality because all the codes were different, his power was not absolute. The crew all voted on the course that they would choose, the actions that they would take, and the prizes that they would attempt to capture. The captain, if he owned the ship, as most buccaneer captains did, had a limited amount of veto power. However, in battle, the captain's authority was nearly absolute. This makes sense when cannonballs are flying at you or the enemy is boarding you and there's no time for debate. It works very much like a microchasm of modern democracy. There are checks and balances on power on board a pirate ship and laws are voted upon. The executive, either the president or the captain, has limited authority among the men until the enemy is at the gates when that executive is granted powers of martial law. This happens in the modern United States, in fact, in most of the modern West. Now, we don't have a transcript of Captain Morgan's actual code. We do have a few accounts from various sources, most notably from Exquamelon, but a few generalized reproductions have been attempted. One such attempt reads as follows. Captain Morgan's Pirate Code The fund of all payments under the articles is the stock of what is gotten by expedition following the same law as other pirates, that is, no prey, no pay. Now, this is obviously not what would have been written, because the brethren, especially Captain Morgan, didn't consider themselves pirates. However, this is accurate in that that is how men on board this expedition would have been getting their pay. 2. Compensation is provided to the captain for the use of his ship and the salary of the carpenter or shipwright who mended, careened, and rigged the vessel, the latter usually about 150 pieces of eight. A sum for provisions and victuals is specified, usually 200 pieces of eight. A salary or compensation is specified for the surgeon and his medicine chest, usually 250 pieces of eight. 3. A standard compensation is provided for maimed and mutilated buccaneers. And then it goes on to quote one translation of Esquimalin. 
Quote, Thus they order for the loss of a right arm six hundred pieces of eight, or six slaves. For the loss of a left arm five hundred pieces of eight, or five slaves. For a right leg five hundred pieces of eight, or five slaves. For the left leg four hundred pieces of eight, or four slaves. For an eye one hundred pieces of eight, or one slave. For a finger of the hand, the same reward as for the eye. 4. Shares of booty are provided as follows. And again, they quote Esquimelin. The captain or chief commander is allotted five or six portions to what the ordinary seamen have, the master's mate only two, and officers proportionate to their employment, after whom they draw equal parts from the highest to even the lowest mariner, the boys not being omitted. For even these draw half a share by reason that, when they happen to take a better vessel than their own, it is the duty of the boys to set fire to the ship or boat wherein they are, and then retire to the prize which they have taken. 5. Quote, in the prizes they take, it is severely prohibited to every one to usurp anything, in particular to themselves. Yea, they make a solemn oath to each other not to abscond or conceal the least thing they find amongst the prey. If afterwards any one is found unfaithful who has contravened the said oath, immediately he is separated and turned out of the society. End quote. I make it clear that this is a reproduction, because it's certainly incomplete and almost certainly filtered through several different sources. You see, there were things that would have been discussed in Captain Morgan's code, such as Captain Morgan's role as admiral, the man who was in charge of the expedition, that isn't mentioned here, but a lot of that is more specific voyage to voyage, and that's how these things were done. At the beginning of every voyage, the men all discussed and voted upon a code that they would all adhere to. However, this reproduction does give us some idea of what the men gathered in the South Keys of Cuba would have voted upon. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. After the roles were decided and the code voted upon, the next and third order of business would have been to decide exactly where they were going and what they were doing. That is to say... What was their target? The first target that was proposed and discussed was actually Havana itself. However, there were men in the party who had been slaves or indentured servants in Panama that let the men know that this wasn't a viable option. They said that they would need at least 1,500 men to take the city, and even then it would be a dicey proposition. So Havana was scrapped, and they tried to figure out another likely place to attack. The most plausible target was a place nearby called Puerto del Principe. It was a rich inland cattle town that sold its beef and its hides to Havana and was therefore pretty opulent. They had never been attacked by any pirates being so far inland, and it showed they should have been an easy target. However, while they were having this discussion, Captain Morgan made a mistake that nearly doomed the entire expedition before it began. They had on board a Spanish prisoner who, when he had been taken, had not responded to the crew, either in English or in Spanish. But he did overhear their plans to attack Puerto del Principe, 
Now, Esquimalan asserts that this dastardly Spaniard actually spoke English the entire time, and he actively planned to learn of their attacks. However, it seems equally likely to me that this man, who probably only spoke Spanish, heard these bearded English captors of his repeatedly saying Puerto del Principe, and followed by much saber-rattling, heavy drinking, and yarring, he figured out what they were planning. Whatever the case was, though, in the middle of the night, this Spaniard escaped. According to a Swimmelin, quote, The man jumped overboard one night and began swimming for the nearest island. The English at once sprang into their canoes to fish him out again, but he managed to land before they could catch him and hid among the trees where they could not find him. Next day, this Spaniard swam from one islet to the next till he reached the Cuban coast. He was familiar with the roads and before long arrived at Puerto del Principe, where he warned the inhabitants of the Corsair's approach and the forces at their disposal. The Spaniards immediately began hiding their goods, while the governor assembled all the men he could, including a number of slaves. He had a great number of trees felled to block the road and laid various ambushes manned with cannon. About eight hundred men were mustered, both from within the town itself and from neighboring places. Having manned the ambuscades with as many as he judged necessary, the governor kept the main body of defenders in an open field near the city, whence he could see the enemy's approach from afar. End quote. With the road well guarded and the main body of soldiers watching their approach, Morgan had to come up with a different route. However, in the jungles of Jamaica, Captain Morgan had been training his men for just such an event. As the colonel of the Jamaican militia, he had taken his men on long hikes through the wilderness. Long, stealthy treks meant to avoid any enemy sighting you and reach your destination prepared to fight which is exactly what they did. They headed into the wilderness to avoid detection and reach the city. When the buccaneers did emerge from the jungle, they saw the Spanish force. It should have been a daunting sight. They had many musketeers, many pikemen. They had heavy artillery. They even had a contingent of cavalry. However, all of the guns and eyes of the Spanish forces were trained on the road. They were looking in the wrong direction. So when the buccaneer attack came, it came as a surprise and caught the Spanish force unaware. The cavalry attempted to flank them, get in around behind them. However, the superior firepower of the buccaneer force cut them down before they even reached them. The Spanish musketeers were no match for the brethren of the coast. The brethren were such good marksmen, so well trained, that they got off three or four volleys for every one Spanish volley. Some of the men leading this force, including Captain Morgan himself, had been trained in the English Civil War. They knew this new style of fighting that had developed in Europe better than these New World Spanish soldiers. By early afternoon, the battle was over, and Captain Morgan led his men into the city. Occasionally, the crack of musket fire would ring out from one of the surrounding buildings, and one or another of the Englishmen would fall. After several such attacks, Captain Morgan lost his patience and sent messengers forth to let the townspeople know that if they surrendered peacefully, they would be treated well. However, if they continued sniping his soldiers, he would be forced to burn the town to the ground. There were, as you might imagine, no more shots fired. The pirates rounded up everybody that was left in the town and moved them to a local church under guard. 
True to his word, Captain Morgan saw that the prisoners were treated well. They were all fed, nobody was raped, nobody was tortured, nobody was murdered. Generally, it wasn't the worst captivity you can imagine. You see, the reality is that, at heart, I think, Captain Morgan was truly an English gentleman, not a pirate. To get the job done, he was required to work with pirates. However, he tried to behave honorably in all his affairs. Unfortunately, for Captain Morgan at least, it got him nowhere. You see, the people had been forewarned of his coming, and they had hidden all of their valuables. All of the silver plate and coin they had thrown down the well, all of the gold they had hidden out in the jungle, buried deep. And Morgan, being either too timid or too honorable to do what he had to do to find out the location of these treasures, rather decided to send out search parties to look for them as best they could. The search parties were coming back time and time again empty-handed. Now, there were plenty of men that were ransacking the town, but that was mostly for the wine, the rum, and the food. They were having a grand old time, but not finding any of the treasure that would pay their wage. Finally, Morgan gathered a few of the men from the church together and instructed them to go out into the woods and find the men and women who had run away from town. It took a few days, but finally they returned. However, they returned empty-handed. They told Morgan that they'd been unable to find anybody, and that, if given more time, they certainly would be able to find them. They told him that, if given fifteen more days' time, they would with absolute certainty bring people back. Captain Morgan allowed them their fifteen days, but then, just a few days later, a group of men who were out ransacking the town returned with a slave in tow. The slave was carrying a letter, and this was something that would have sparked their attention, because... Nearly all slaves were illiterate. They weren't taught to read, so what would this slave be doing with anything written on it? Now, it's also quite likely that the pirates who brought him back couldn't read either. Plus, it was in Spanish, so even if they could read a little bit of English or French, they were unlikely to know Spanish. So they brought it back to Captain Morgan to have a local man translate it. When the translator read the note out loud to Morgan, the captain would have been... furious. The author was the governor from the neighboring province. He had written this letter, and had it copied many times, telling the people of the province that Captain Morgan had sacked to hold out for as long as possible. If they could wait for about fifteen more days, he would arrive with his entire garrison, as well as the militias from many of the neighboring cities. They were gathering an army that could retake Puerto del Principe. Morgan had been lied to, and he'd bought it. Beyond that, it was his own fault. He could have taken the steps necessary to get the location of the treasure and be gone by this point. And it wasn't just the fact that he knew it. Many of the men who sailed under him were telling him time and again, these are the things you have to do. But for Morgan, he saw them as brutal and savage and unbecoming of a proper English gentleman. This was teaching Morgan a lesson, a lesson that, in future raids, he would employ to the fullest. However, right now he had no time to employ those lessons because time was running out. The Spanish had an army bearing down on them. Captain Morgan took the six most prominent men from among those he had captured and gathered them together. He sent out a message to the Spanish saying that if they attacked, these six most prominent men were to be killed. He also said that it would only take a few days for his demands to be met. This wasn't going to be a traditional ransom that was 
difficult to do when you were staring down several thousand Spanish lances. What Captain Morgan wanted were 1,000 head of cattle, slaughtered, salted, and loaded onto his boats. Morgan and his Spanish captives moved the cattle, the men, and all of the goods they had taken down to the beach where their ships lay at anchor. Morgan oversaw a large number of Spaniards slaughtering the cattle and the entirety of his force setting up defenses. This was necessary because the very next morning the Spanish army arrived. However, they did not attack. They did wait atop the beachhead for Morgan to finish his work and sail away. Now this may have been to spare the life of the six men that Captain Morgan had taken hostage. They were important people. They were likely the priest or a bishop, maybe the son of a local dignitary or another, perhaps wealthy businessmen within the community, people that the Spanish wouldn't want to lose. But even if they did lose these six men, which would be a blow, that would not be a huge concern to the governor of a neighboring province. What would have concerned him were the expertly trained marksmen that the English and the French had on the beach. This army knew in advance that the Spanish were coming and were able to set up defenses that could counter anything the Spanish were able to do. So were they to attack, even though they could have taken the buccaneers in all likelihood, it would have been a bloodbath. And a bloodbath that could, if everybody kept their heads, be avoided. However, as if the situation weren't tense enough already, chaos all of a sudden erupted in the camp on the beach. It started off innocuously enough. An Englishman, while the cows were being slaughtered, stole the marrow bone of a cow belonging to a French buccaneer. The buccaneer caught him and challenged the Englishman to a duel who accepted. However, when the Frenchman turned to march to his designated spot, the Englishman promptly shot him in the back. As you might imagine, most of the French buccaneers on the beach were less than pleased. The Frenchman's compatriots drew their sabers and lifted their muskets. All of the Englishmen nearby, noticing this kerfuffle, did the same. The two sides squared up against each other, and the words became more and more heated. To any Spaniard watching these events transpire from atop the hill, it must have seemed that the buccaneers were about to do their work for them. And then, as the tension was rising and chaos was about to erupt, Captain Morgan appeared. He stood between the opposing sides. Any shot that was fired would endanger him, which would, of course, lead to the death of the man who fired the shot. This calmed the situation down, even more so when Captain Morgan had the Englishman clapped in irons. Both sides quickly, if perhaps reluctantly, lowered their arms. This, once again, shows us Captain Morgan's true medal as a commander. It shows us why we still remember his name. Very similar events happened to buccaneer crews all over the Caribbean. Crews under commanders whose names are at best a footnote in history and whose bones have been lost. But Captain Morgan is a man who will be remembered because when these situations arose, he calmed them down and kept his men in order. Which was for the best. This would have been a dangerous situation under any circumstances, but more so even now considering there was an entire Spanish army waiting to ride down, sweep away the last vestige of resistance, and spend the night feasting on already slaughtered and salted cattle and Jamaican rum. The French crews in the fleet still weren't happy, but Captain Morgan swore that he would have the man tried and hung when they returned to Jamaica under English law. As soon as the rest of the beef was salted and loaded on the ships, the fleet sailed away, safely. When they were a fair distance away, Morgan, honorably again, set the six captors that he had taken free 
and sailed once again for the South Keys in Cuba. Upon arrival, all of the captains were gathered together, and they began a ritual of counting the plunder among them all. In the end, the total taken came to 50,000 pieces of eight. In today's dollars, that comes to a total of about two and a half million, and for most of us, that might seem like a rich haul. However, we have to remember that there were 650 men in this fleet. Then we have to take into account the extra shares given to Morgan as commander, the extra shares given to each of the twelve captains for the use of their vessel, the extra shares given to the carpenters and surgeons on board the vessels, and then the extra injury pay given to any man who had been shot, maimed, or otherwise wounded in taking the city. In the end, the average share was about fifty pieces of eight, or, in today's dollars, about three thousand dollars. Three grand for weeks of hardship. Weeks of malaria, yellow fever, trudging through the jungle, and then being shot at and potentially killed. Only to go back to either Tortuga or Port Royal, which were two of the most expensive cities in the world. Think of Hawaii today. Think of how expensive everything is, simply because nearly all of their goods have to be imported. The only things available in Jamaica that were local were the rum and the food. They didn't use local materials to make clothes, they rarely used local building materials, and any luxury goods were unbelievably pricey. After the buccaneers were all paid out, the French, who were still upset at the English dogs, but even more so disappointed with the poor haul, decided to leave the fleet behind. Now they left in good order. They were still friends, and they could still work together in the future. Captain Morgan assured them that the Englishman who had killed one of their brothers would be tried and executed. But they were after better prizes, better hauls, and a captain who could offer them these things. Now most of the Frenchmen, not all, but most, would have returned to Tortuga. You see, they would have received word that a call had gone out, around the Caribbean, for the brethren to gather. Any of the French, Dutch, or even English buccaneers that had a mind to follow the most successful leader in the Caribbean knew exactly where they had to go, and that was Tortuga. The man who sent that call out was the most famous and the most feared buccaneer in the New World, Francois Lolonnais. For a time, let's follow those French buccaneers who left the fleet of Henry Morgan and look at the career of Francois Lolonnais. His early career showed a lot of promise. It was also somewhat speckled with failure and horror. Most of what we know about Lolonais comes from Esquemelin, but he was most certainly a real pirate. We have records of him from both English, French, and Spanish sources that are outside of the perhaps exaggerated claims of Esquemelin. Francois Lolonais came to the New World, quote, in the usual way, as an indentured servant or slave, end quote. Eventually, he found his way to Tortuga and joined a buccaneering crew. Now, we don't have much information about who he sailed under, but it's possible, perhaps even likely, that he sailed under Roque Brasiliano. Roque the Brazilian, as he was known to the English buccaneers, was a Dutch-born privateer who was based out of Brazil. If we recall, Brazil was, for a time, mostly Dutch land. They had taken over a large portion of it because of the salt mines there to replace their trade with Spain and Portugal, where most of the salt in Europe came from. However, in much the same way that Port Royal and Tortuga bred and attracted dangerous men because of the constant threat of war with Spain, Dutch Brazil was equally violent, and the Brazilian was a perfect example of that. 
He had a reputation for unnecessary brutality. The Rock was known to kill entire crews of vessels he had taken, not out of any practical, tactical necessity, but simply because he enjoyed killing Spaniards. He was known to use rape and fire as a tactic to intimidate the crews of people that he was certainly going to kill. He would tell them they needed to surrender, or they faced rape, murder, and death by fire, just like that town that he had recently taken, or that ship that he had recently sacked. Most people, sensible people, decided to listen to him and surrender to avoid that terrible fate, and then the Brasiliano would go ahead and do those terrible things to them anyway. Now, whether or not Francois Lolonet actually sailed under Roque Brasiliano, he certainly learned from his tactics. After sailing with the buccaneer crew for some time and proving his valor time and time again, the governor of Tortuga gave Lolonet a ship of his own. You see, in Port Royal, piracy was a known and accepted evil, part of life that had to be dealt with. However, in Tortuga, it was an integral part of the institution there. Francois Lolonet took ships across the Caribbean, sacked and burned towns, and certainly paid a fraction of his goods to the governor in Tortuga, until, finally, his men were defeated on the Yucatan Peninsula near Campeche. With most of his men dead or dying on the beach, Francois Lolonet smeared himself with blood and laid down among the bodies of his former brothers, playing dead until the Spanish soldiers had left. Now the few buccaneers that had survived had been taken prisoner, and they reported their commander, Lolonet, dead, because they had not seen him at the end of the battle. Sneaking away from the battlefield, Lolonet looted the corpse of a dead Spaniard and made his way into the jungle. As he neared the closest town, he met several slaves and promised that if they helped him to escape, he would give them the revenge that they were seeking against their Spanish overlords. The slaves did, in fact, know of a few canoes that it would be quite easy for them to steal if only they could get to a place of safety. Lolonet promised them that place of safety, and the small group headed out into sea in the middle of the night. They made their way to Tortuga, which was a safe place for any escaped Spanish slaves. Now, for Lolonet himself, his reputation was a bit tarnished. He had had his first true victory, losing his soldiers and his ship. However, his name did still hold some weight. Imagine this disgraced man going into the bars and brothels of Tortuga, attempting to convince you that it's safe to sail under him. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. He had lost his entire force on his last raid, and the only men he had with him were a few slaves who knew, likely, very, very little about seafaring. All they had were a few canoes, and yet somehow, Lolonet gathered a few men, mostly the miscreants and malformed on the island, to go out and take Spanish prizes. These men, these outcasts, sailed into Spanish waters near Cuba, and their next move showed true brilliance. The governor, 
there in Havana, had had word that Lolonet had been spotted off the coast of Cuba. Now, of course, he had word, an official letter, that the notorious French pirate was dead, but he decided to send a single ship out to investigate the potential truth of these rumors. Her ten guns and ninety-odd heavily armed soldiers had orders to kill any corsairs in the region, excepting Lolonet himself if he was in fact alive. There was even a special crew member, an African slave who was a renowned jailer and executioner, sent to take Lolone captive and bring him to Havana and see him tortured and hung. The buccaneer sailed his small bark out towards the man-of-war, boldly, which had all of her guns trained on the tiny vessel. Every man on board spoke a little bit of Spanish, but none so well as all of the slaves that he had rescued from Campeche. They called out to the men on board the Spanish vessel that the brigands were nearby, and they asked for the aid and protection of the Spanish ship. The Spaniards granted that protection, and wouldn't you know it, only a few hours later, two buccaneer vessels arrive at the mouth of the river into the bay in which the Spanish vessel was waiting. Every gun and every eye on board the man-o'-war was trained on the two vessels emerging from the river. They began firing. However, the two vessels were a little too nimble to hit. However, they were able to keep those two little vessels at bay. In the meanwhile, Francois Lolonet, his most trusted men, and all of the African slaves that he had rescued from Campeche, snuck aboard the Spanish ship. They drew their cutlasses and began to cut down every Spaniard on board. When all of the men on deck were dead or dying, he posted men at every entrance below decks. As soldiers who heard the trouble above decks began to emerge, one by one they were cut down by the men waiting for them. Every single man that emerged was slayed systematically. When the special executioner on board was brought before Lolonet, he fell to his knees and begged to be spared, saying that he would tell Lolonet all he wished to know of Spain and Cuba. Lolonet listened to the man's confession and then took his head. It was here that we get perhaps our first look at who Francois Lolonet was. After taking the man's head, he raised his saber to his lips and licked the blood off the blade. One imagines that Lolonet told his men that the blood was not nearly as sweet as that of the Spaniards that he and his blade truly thirsted for. This became, in later days, something of a habit for Francois Lolonet. Of the ninety men on board, only one was left alive. That last man he sent to Havana with a message. It read, quote, I shall henceforward give no quarter to any Spaniard whatsoever, and I have great hopes I shall execute on your own person the very same punishment I have done upon those you sent against me. Thus I have retaliated the kindness you designed to me and my companions. End quote. What's important to note here is that not only was he threatening the life of the governor who had sent men against him, he was threatening the life of every Spaniard in the New World. He let it be known that it was not only his hope, but his true ambition to kill any Spaniard he came across horribly. He returned to Tortuga in triumph. He was the captain of a Spanish man-of-war and was the most feared and respected captain in the Caribbean. Now it's here that the dates get a bit confusing. The sources don't exactly agree, but it's possible that this is where the Frenchman, who had been with Captain Morgan, left to go join up with Francois Lolonet. Now, that may have been for a different raid some time later, but either way, the captain sent out a call for all of the brethren to come gather, and they came in huge numbers. Stefan Talty writes in Empire of Blue Water, quote, 
Lolonet was a rising star who was making his boys rich. Morgan would have to meld his ideas with those of a ruthless killer if he were to avoid another embarrassment. And then later, he goes on, Lolonet was an innovator as well as a complete and utter sociopath. End quote. He would prove this on his upcoming raid to Maricabo. On their way to the Spanish fleet, the small buccaneer crew took a single Spanish ship that had somewhere in the realm of 40,000 pieces of eight and 10,000 worth of Spanish jewels. Then, in just a few days' time, they fell upon another ship that was carrying a total of 12 guns, along with powder, musket, shot, and an additional 12,000 pieces of eight. Not a bad start, I'd say. Already, he had almost accidentally tripped upon a better haul than Captain Morgan had done on his entire last raid. And he was just getting started. The fleet sailed for the coast of South America, what today is Venezuela and Maracaibo Bay. At the southern tip of the bay, two peninsulas reach out and guard the entrance to the inland lake there. Esquimalin describes the narrow passage, quote, The entrance for shipping is no wider than the range of an eight-pounder, end quote. That is, an eight-pound cannon, which does not have a huge amount of range. If you remember the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, there are those two kings guarding the river passage into the land of Gondor. That is... A bit of an exaggeration, and there were no awesome statues, but that's something like what we have here. Now, instead of the epic statues, what we have are two forts guarding the harbor. However, first, Esquimalin does go into uh, an account that he learned from a Spaniard of a tribe of natives that lived in the region, which I would be neglecting my duties if I did not recount. He says, quote, a Spaniard told me of a sort of people who live in these mountains, of the same stature as the Indians, but with short curly hair with long claws on their feet, like apes. Their skin resists arrows and all sharp instruments, and they are very agile climbers, having tremendous strength. The Spaniards attempted to kill some of the tribe with their lances, but the iron could not pierce their tough skin. These wild men managed to seize some of the Spaniards, carrying them up into the treetops and hurling them down to the ground. These people have never been heard to speak. Sometimes they come down to the plantations at the foot of the mountains and carry off any women slaves they can capture. I have read various descriptions of America, but have never found any mention of such people, so I believe they must be a sort of Barbary ape living in those parts, for I have seen many such apes in the forest. Nevertheless, several Spaniards have assured me that these creatures are human and that they have seen them frequently. I give it here for what it's worth. Truly, God's works are great and these things may well be. End quote. However, if the Spanish on the mainland were fearing these mystical apes, Francois Lolonnais intended to teach them a true fear. He took the fort guarding the narrow passage and raised his pirate flag on the battlements there. Every man inside was killed. Then he gathered his men, and they made for the city of Maracaibo. Now, much like Morgan's last raid, the Spanish had advanced knowledge of the coming buccaneers and managed to hide all of their treasure. When Lolonet and the buccaneers took the city, they found it eerily deserted. There was no one there. The streets were empty. So Francois Lolonet sent somewhere in the realm of 150 men out into the wilderness to find prisoners. They came back a few days later with 12 men, women, and children in tow. Lolonet had the prisoners brought before him and made his intentions known. He wanted the location of their buried treasure as well as the location of their friends and neighbors. 
he had the first man among them brought before him and asked him his question. The man refused to answer, so... Francois Lolonnet, well... You know, this might be a good place to pause. Are you currently eating something? It might be a good time to finish up and come back to the podcast later. Are there any kids in the room? Because I think it might be bedtime. Do you have a particular aversion to blood and gore? Because if so, join us next time when we'll be talking about Captain Morgan's next great fun-filled swashbuckling raid. Are you still with us? Good. That first man who refused to answer was thrown at the feet of Francois Lolonnet, who drew his cutlass and began to hack away at the poor soul. Again and again he brought his blade down upon the poor man in full view of his eleven companions, including the women and children, then, covered in blood, panting, with a mess of bone and flesh, blood and brains at his feet, Lolonnet raised his blade to the cowering women in the group and had one of them brought before him. He asked her the same questions. Where is your treasure? Where are your friends? Staring at the horror before her, the woman answered quickly. Her friends were in the hills with the treasure, but they were constantly moving and hiding. She didn't know exactly where they were. At this answer, Francois Lolonnet was not satisfied. He had the woman stripped and then tied her to the rack. It was a crude contraption, really no more than two pieces of rough-cut lumber tied together in the shape of an X, to which the poor woman was tied. Then Lolonet began to cut at her. At first, just small incisions, all the while questioning her. Then, Francois Lolonet began to slice off pieces of her flesh. He continued asking his questions, but the only response he got were screams. When the woman finally, mercifully, passed out from the shock and blood loss, Francois Lolonnet cut her throat and ordered what was left of her taken out into the wilderness. A third prisoner was brought before the buccaneer and began immediately babbling the same answer as the woman before him. They're out in the wilderness. We don't know where. They have left since you captured us. Lolonnet ordered that a length of rope and a piece of wood be brought to him. The rope was wrapped around the man's head, and then attached to the piece of wood. Lolonet stood in front while a torturer stood behind and took hold of either end of the piece of wood and began to turn. This wrapped the rope around itself, tightening it around the man's forehead. Lolonet once again asked his question and got the same response. The torturer gave the piece of wood another half turn, tightening the rope. Again the question, again no new answer, and again another half turn. And again, and again, squeezing the rope tighter and tighter around the man's head until he began to lose vision and could feel the pressure within his ears and his nose growing. Another turn, and then another, the pressure all the while building, until, at last, the man's eyes burst from his sockets. This process, called wolding, was a favorite of Lolonet, and in fact, many pirates to come. It was simple and deeply effective, and it required materials that could be found on board any vessel in the sea. Usually, when these items were brought before the accused, he would begin babbling the answers that the accusers wanted before the rope was even tied around his head, and you can imagine why. 
It wasn't just pirates, though, that employed this technique. Even men on land who were respectable members of society, governors, and magistrates were known to employ this technique. It was one of many tortures that gained prominence in the Caribbean. It was common among men of all rank and file, nearly as common as lashing, and among pirates, significantly more common than lashing. You see, pirates had an aversion to the lash. Most of them had been raised up and learned their trade on board either naval vessels or merchant vessels, where the captain's word was law, and the most common punishment on board those vessels was to be tied to the mast and beaten with a cat of nine tails several times until your back was bleeding and broken. Most pirate vessels, on which, as we have discussed, they made their own rules, had laws against the lash, so to punish and torture they had to come up with other means. The most common of these was the practice known as marooning. That was the practice of being left alone on a deserted island in the middle of nowhere with little to no hope of escape or rescue, with no food, no water, and only a single pistol as your company. When your choice is between dying of thirst, dying of hunger, or dying of a single shot to the head, well, the choice is fairly obvious. Less common was the myth of what's known as walking the plank. You see, this is a beautiful story that builds suspense in the mind of many of the Victorian authors that wrote about pirates, but in reality it was little more than a waste of time. The only real pirate that we have any documentation of having forced people to walk the plank was Steed Bonnet, who, let's face it, is hardly a pirate when it comes down to it. Usually, if you were to be tossed overboard, they would merely pick you up and toss you over the side. If they were feeling particularly cruel, they would give you a cut that was known to bleed and throw you into shark-infested waters. Now, pirates throughout the years had a wide variety of tortures and torments that they employed. Most of those we'll get to when we get to the pirate who was known for using them, but the most inventive of all of the pirate tortures was the practice known as keel-hauling. Imagine yourself tied to a rope and then slung overboard, hanging from the side of the vessel. Then imagine that the rope is actually run under the hull of the ship, around the other side of the vessel where men across the way are holding the other end of the rope. These men drop you into the water, and the men on the opposite side begin to pull, until you are dragged deep underwater, nearly drowning, when finally you break the surface on the other side and are able to grasp some air. Then you are dropped back into the water and drug underneath the ship only to arrive on the other side, needing air worse than ever and only given a brief second to gasp for air. Now, being bound hand and foot and drug underwater repeatedly sounds like a terrible enough torment until you remember that the hulls of these vessels were covered with razor-sharp barnacles and other hangers-on that could cut your scalp and your face, your torso, your arms, your legs. Then you remember that the ocean is made of salt water, which would burn these wounds terribly, as well as filling your eyes and then your lungs, burning you inside and out. Then, bleeding, burning, you remember the sharks. Suddenly, being marooned doesn't sound so bad. However, after the torment of his last captive, Lolonet realized that he was not going to get any other answers, so he had the rest of the captives killed in quicker and less terrible ways. 
His men began to loot and burn the town. It took him two weeks. For a fortnight, any woman or girl was in danger of being raped. Terribly. Any man was in danger of being tortured and killed, and all among them went hungry. It was a terrible affair, one of the worst in Caribbean history. This was debauchery on the level of the most insane Roman emperor. This was true terror for all of the people who lived in the city of Maracaibo. After two weeks of this torment, the pirates finally, with their pockets full, carrying chests of gold and silver, went back to their ships. The people of Maracaibo were left to pray to God, lick their wounds, and breathe a little easier. Then, two days later, like Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers at the end of a slasher flick, the sails of Francois Lolonnais and his men appeared on the horizon again. Now it appears that the narrow passage back into Maracaibo Bay was just too shallow at this time for his sailors to navigate, and he needed a pilot to guide them out into the ocean. They were given that pilot and sailed away. However, I suspect a part of me believes that Francois Lolonnais in his infinite capacity for inflicting suffering, just thought this was hilarious. Destroying these people's lives, tormenting them for two weeks, and then, when they thought they were safe, showing up just to give them one final scare. Back in the South Keys of Cuba, Captain Morgan, well, he was a man that didn't care for these methods. He found them distasteful, but he knew, finally, that he would have to adopt some of them, if he were to be as successful as Francois Lolonnais. If he were to save his island home in Jamaica, he was going to have to become a more ruthless and terrible figure than any man before him. And we would see the fruits of this knowledge on his next raid. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and thank everybody for supporting the show. Many of you have been kind enough to donate to the show directly through the PayPal button on our website, and we greatly appreciate that. Many of you have also become Patreon supporters, which really helps keep the podcast afloat. I'd like to thank all of you and give a special shout-out to our new Patreon subscribers. That is Benjamin, Yov, Matthew, and Sam. Thank you so much, guys. All of you who are supporters on Patreon, I'd like you to keep an eye on your mailboxes because there will be one of our gifts coming to you as soon as possible. I'd also like to thank everybody who has left a review or a rating on iTunes or any service on which you listen to the podcast and encourage anybody who hasn't to go out there and do so. It really helps get us noticed. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying the music, why not go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not go on over to our website, piratehistorypodcast.com, or check us out on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We really appreciate all the support and feedback we get over here, and most importantly, as always, thank you for listening.
time has come now to bid him goodbye. For at first light this morn, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.